I want surprises. I don't know about surprises, Pete Burns, but how about the next three singles produced by Stock Aiken Waterman? This is a journey through Stock Aiken Waterman. I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au, and this is Matt Demby. Hi, everybody. Hope you're all doing well all around the world. And I want to do a special shout out to our new fans in Liechtenstein and Monaco. I wonder if uh, Prince Albert is one of our listeners, Gavin. I've also <laughs> just been reading a fantastic, lovely review that someone called Maddie has just posted on the UK version of Apple Podcasts. Thanks, Maddie, for that review. It was wonderful. Excellent. Welcome, everyone from everywhere. Matt, let's get straight into it. We've got a lot to get through this episode. You're up. Right. Well, first up, we've got the second single from the Knights and Emerald soundtrack, following on from Princess's Tell Me Tomorrow. This is a song that would be given three shots at success, twice with this artist and a third time with one of Saw's most iconic acts. Let's have a listen to I'm the One Who Really Loves You by Austin Howard. That was I'm the One Who Really Loves You by Austin Howard, first released in August of 86, then in December of 87, in a slightly remixed form. Unfortunately, it didn't chart either time. Of course, it went on to be recorded by Mel and Kim on their iconic FLM album, which is where I first heard of it. What do you think of this song, Gavin? I like this song. Like you, I heard it on the Mel and Kim album first, but I did hear the Austin version when I picked up the Knights and Emerald soundtrack in the 90s, as I told you about a couple of episodes ago. I can't decide whose version I I like more, Austin's or Melon Kim's, but I feel like it maybe suits Austin's voice a bit more. Now, Austin, for those of you who don't know, was a singer who'd been around the scene for a little while. He'd been in a group called The Biz, which was kind of like a Shalimar-type group that also featured Yaz of The Only Way Is Up fame, and they had a few singles out in 1983. A year later, it had slimmed down to a duo called Be Bizarre, a bit of a rebranding there, and they recorded a version of Sucker for Love by Tina Marie and Rick James, coincidentally produced by Pete Hammond. Let's have a bit of a listen to that. That was B Bizarre, spelled the letter B, B I Z, the letter R, B Bizarre with Sucker for Love, released in 1984, and that featured the vocals of Austin Howard, who would find his way to PWL and end up recording I'm the One Who Really Loves You. Matt, what did you think of the song? Well, I never heard this version at the time, but I was very, very familiar with the iteration on the Mel and Kim album. So I know their version in and out, note by note. So it was really strange for me to hear Austin's version the first time I heard it. I didn't warm to it immediately. But with repeated listens, I really love it. I think it's a great, great version. Austin did a great job of it. I mean, Mel and Kim's will always be my favourite just because of the place that that whole album has in my own story. But this version's really grown on me a lot. I think it's a really good song, whoever does it. And I think, you know, it's a shame it wasn't a chart hit for Austin. That's right. And it was certainly, uh, well, I don't know if it was a chart hit he was looking for, but he was looking to move his career along. And that was a big part of him coming to work with Saw. Let's hear from Austin now about how he ended up recording I'm the one who really loves you. You know, when Pete 
started PWL and started to audition or draft in artists for his for, for his records and stuff. I mean, I was just there in the pool. I had a manager, um, Safter Jaffrey, who, when I left um, Magnet Records, he left with me. And um, he was the one that... I was writing, I was doing some demos with somebody else and he knew somebody in the, in the Stock Agent Waterman camp and um, he played them one of my songs and they really liked the song and said, oh, maybe this guy could be right for a track that we've got. And that was how um, I got introduced to, to Stock Agent Waterman. So at this point, had you signed with 10 or were you still? No, I hadn't signed with 10 at that point. I mean, that once they decided that they, you know, they wanted me to sing, obviously sing the track, I did a test for it. They really liked it. And then obviously the, the deal came after that. You know, I was really pushing my, my manager into, as a writer, I just wanted to work with some of the best producers, you know. So it was that sort of angle that I sort of got in as a writer, as a songwriter. So I was slightly distracted by the offer of me performing and seeing um, I'm the one who really loves you for the Knights and Emeralds film. That was supposed to go to uh, a national release in the cinemas. Uh, I don't know what happened, but that didn't happen. And then it was, so that kind of set us back a bit because we were preparing to market, you know, myself off of the back of the, of the film. So when that didn't happen, um, it was sort of a, oh, what do we do now kind of thing. And then it was, they decided that we were going to go for it anyway, and uh, it was going to premiere on te- on television. So that was, um, yeah, that was a pretty sticky time because I was I was in the midst of it. I, it was really strange actually because there I was wanting to be a writer, finding myself on this record. You know, as I thought it'd be great in, and all of a sudden it went sort of sour, um, and I began to worry a little bit for my you know for the growth of my career because it wasn't actually certain that I, I hadn't signed to them you know, for three or four singles or anything. As I said, it was, you know, they were testing me out really and they liked it. And so it was sort of, I was expecting to, to off the back of that, to negotiate a, a deal with them. So the song was written for you were in the picture. Is that right? Yeah. And what did you think of the song? I, at the time I thought it was, you know, I thought it was, was okay. It wasn't exactly where I wanted to go, but you know, when you get into um, an environment like that, you don't start dictating what you want and what you don't want, which I found really frustrating because I, as I say, you know, they were really prolific um, producers, as you know. And um, it was kind of frightening because I, I found myself in a situation after really working hard to get them, thinking, oh my God, is this right for me? It was really difficult because, of course, my manager who was working to get me uh, a record deal was like, well, you're in now, you're in. And I was sort of like, yes, I'm in, but I'm not sure if I want want that particular particular thing. And um, so I kind of, you know, obviously I was committed to to that record. And, um, you know, behind the scenes, I was trying to negotiate a sort of production situation that was going to suit me. But then I found myself really just being part of the, the whole, mach- whole machinery. And that really frightened me. I, I mean, even though they were having great success, but I did feel that really wasn't what I wanted to be remembered for. You know, I, I really had strong ideas of what I wanted to create for myself. I mean, I'd grown up in South East London um, and I remember, you know, it was very difficult times for me growing up. I mean, it was quite an aggressive, racist environment that I was um, was growing up in. And I really couldn't wait to get out of South East London and come to come to North London. And, and you know, that was the driving force for me to be successful because I was told when I left school that I wouldn't 
you know, amount to very much. You know, most I could do is probably be a bricklayer. That's always stayed with me. I built up a real belief in myself about what it is that I wanted to do. And I was hell bent on creating that for myself. And I would say that to any artist, you know, if you believe in yourself and you have a vision, you have an idea, don't let people distract you from that. What did you want to do musically? Start making more to me. They, they had a formula, you know, and that's what they stuck to. I had gone in and said, Look, do you mind if we can use some live drums on my records? And um, that didn't go down very well. The Lindrum was the king of drum machines at the time. And, you know, I did find that it was quite formulaic. And I, and, and I always wanted, you know, my music to have that real life element, you know, a real, music, real musician's element to it. So drums and was always, you know, one of the things I've always uh, always loved and I love rock music. And maybe that whole, the whole rock thing was sort of in the back of my head in terms of me wanting to create my sound. Um, of course, I wasn't a producer. You know, I was hoping to learn as much as I could also from, you know, the studios and, and the Stock Avery Waterman guys. And obviously I, I was very lucky to be in and around it. And I, for some time, particularly one time, I remember going in there, um, I think it was Latoya Jackson was in, in, the, in the booth and I'd gone in as I usually just go in sort of most days. And they were like, oh, Austin, go in there. She's not feeling great. Go in there. And, you know, I'm like, what's Latoya Jackson? You know, I'm like, go in there. She's not feeling so good. Go in. Because I was a bit of a bit of a character. <laughs> I went in and I said to her, are you okay? And she said, oh, yes, I'm fine. She looked at me. She said, oh, you're so cute. <laughs> and I, I literally thought, what, what am I doing here? But, you know, it was, a, it was a really fun environment. It was it was almost like a youth club down in the studios down there. It was, um, yeah, there was a lot of fun and a lot, a lot of action going on with artists all over the place but as I say you know it was you know you, you wouldn't have wanted anywhere better to learn your craft and learn you know what what it takes to make records and and work with artists so who did you say can I have real drums to Peter Waterman Pete and I used to banter a lot I mean I've got to say you know there are very few people like him and I think um Sometimes, you know, people like that can be misunderstood. I think what you've got to remember is, you know, when you've created an environment for people to be creative in, um, and, you know, let's me, he had a lot of, of artists um, going through there. I mean, Rick Astley was a T-boy there at the time when I was there. So it was really highly creative. And, and Matt and Mike were constantly in the studios, running in and out, writing songs. What do you think of this? I've got a verse for this. What do you think of that? And running back in again. And, you know, I would say, well, what about that? And sometimes they look at me sideways, but um, it was a wonderful place to be, really. But as I said before, I, I really was constantly thinking, is this right for me? Is this right for me? And just having that feeling, you know, sort of on a daily basis, I kind of knew that, um, you know, this was going to be a difficult situation. So when I did speak to Pete about that, he looked at me and said, you want, you want real drums he says that lindrum there has been good enough for for whoever it might be and it's been good enough for us we've got a number one with that and literally it was like you're fucking mad mate <laughs> so well as my mum always said if you don't ask you know you just don't get so yes my experiences with them was quite short-lived but as i say it was a fantastic experience when this movie sort of stiffed and fell at the opening gate, it really dashed any hope that this single was going to get the kind of push it needed. Didn't even get a video, unfortunately. So sadly, you know, it, it just wasn't going to happen. As we mentioned earlier, it did get re-released in 87, you know, at the height of Saw mania when Saw were just the hottest thing out there. They were hoping, I guess, in the wake of Mel and Kim that this single could have worked, but that it didn't fire up that time either. And it was actually news to Austin that it had been re-released. I broke that news to him when I was talking 
talking to him. He'd moved on by then and he wasn't even aware that I'm the One Who Really Loves You had come out again in 1987. And you can hear me tell him that in the bonus material. We've got the full interview with Austin there. But back to the song, and it's actually got a really interesting song structure. Stockacre and Waterman are known for their formula. That word formula has come up again and again as we've been talking to people. And it's the typical verse, chorus, verse, chorus, some kind of middle eight that usually was an instrumental middle eight or them playing around with vocal effects. And then the chorus would come back in and then repeat to fade. But the song structure of I'm the One Who Really Loves You is quite different. It starts with that I'm do-do, the one do-do intro. I'm I'm not going to do my full-on vocals there. Don't want to put Matt to shame. Um, (laughs) Then it goes into a double verse, which isn't that common for a sore song. Then it goes into the chorus, but a version of the chorus that doesn't have the big, yes, I am, whoo, bit in it. Then another verse, then the chorus with that big ending, then the I'm do do break, then another verse, then there's an instrumental break, and then the chorus comes in and goes out to fade. Like, Matt, that's quite unusual for a solo song, isn't it? It definitely is. You know, they were trying out a few different things here. And one of the things that really stood out to me when I first heard the Austin version of this song is that line, I'm do do the one. Show off. Yeah, well, <laughs> in this version, it's sung uh, by female backing vocalist, whereas in the Mel and Kim version, I'm pretty sure that's Mel and Kim singing the line. And I always found that that line was the biggest driving line in the song. So it was weird for me to see that disconnected from the main singer on Austin's version. Would now be a good time to hear a little bit of the Mel and Kim version? What do you we think? We have to. Let's hear Mel and Kim. Right, I'm flashing back to my teenage bedroom uh, looking at that cassette because uh, I had the cassette version. And it actually was released in America, not in the UK. And so we won't be covering it in this podcast because we're only doing the UK singles. Maybe we'll get to the international singles one day. But I did speak to Kim about the American release and the remix. And I'm going to pop that in the bonus material, a little bit of a sneak peek of our interview with Kim Appleby. But back to Austin, now might be a good time to hear a little bit more from Austin talking about the song, the backing vocals and his vocals. Let's hear some more from Austin now. I remember the morning I was going in to do my vocal and I was really excited, you know, going to do a vocal for a record for Stock Aiken and Waterman. Got into the studio and, you know, they're all very relaxed and generally what we do is play the track and just muck around with with ideas in terms of interpretation. That was also quite difficult because I'd try and interpret things and Mike would say, no, 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 keep it simple, keep it simple, keep it simple. Um, at that time, I was still learning my craft. So it wasn't a, a difficult situation. I mean, it was quite quite easy. I don't think I spent too long on them. I usually do two or three takes. Hopefully then we, we generally usually would have something. I went in the morning, the backing vocalists came in in the afternoon and by the end of the day the record was done do you know who did backing vocals on the track oh gosh i think was it d lewis that's right the lewis sisters again those guys they're fantastic you know at their job as well and i mean you know matt and mike they were 
their saviors, you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, they were they, they were there a lot at PWL as part of the, um, the recording team. And your vocal is very high, um, a lot of falsetto. Was that your kind of natural singing range or were you kind of pushing out of your range? You've got a quite a wide range, two and a half octave range. And I think at that, at that time it was a part of my voice that I was experimenting with and, and working with. But it's not sort of my natural um, singing voice. Um, and they really liked that falsetto um, tone. So that's why we went, I went with that. Was it written that high, the song, or was that something that just evolved during the session? That just evolved during the session. I mean, I can't remember exactly what key it was in, but it just seems that falsetto approach was was the right approach for the song. Um, as I said, you know, we go in and we try different things, and, and that's what we came up with as the final. So, yes, the Lewis sisters, Dee and Shirley, responsible for those great vocals in I'm the One Who Really Loves You Here. So he recorded this one song, with Stock Aiken Waterman as we heard didn't really like the musical direction he wanted to be a bit more involved he asked Pete Waterman for real drums which I love the audacity of that I know I know but then he joined up with another couple of musicians and formed a band that you may have heard of called Ellis Beggs and Howard he is obviously the Howard in that that was with Simon Ellis who went on to be a massive pop producer responsible for all sorts of big pop records Records you will have heard of S Club 7, Britney Spears, Spice Girls, you name it, all the big pop acts of the late 90s, early 2000s, Simon Ellis was there, and Nick Beggs, the third part of the trio who had previously been in Kaja Gugu. Uh, if you're not familiar with Ellis Beggs and Howard's material, here's a little bit of a sample of their work. <laughs> Big Bubbles, No Troubles by Ellis Beggs and Howard. And you can hear Austin talk all about what happened with that band in the bonus material. Unfortunately, it was a case of another record company being a little bit crap. And from a singer recording their one and only single with Saw, we move now to a Stock Aiken Waterman regular. It's Hazel Dean with Stand Up. Released in September of 1986, that was Stand Up by Hazel Dean. Unfortunately, it only got to number 79 in the UK, and it was part of a bit of a difficult period in Hazel Dean's history. She'd had the big hits from her first album with Stockhake and Waterman. Some more big hits were still to come later in the 80s, but yeah, this period wasn't really that great for her, was it, Matt? Yeah, Hazel found herself in a bit of a no-man's land at this point in her career. She was putting out some really good singles. I think they say it's going to rain should have been a top 10. We both agree on that. Before this, she'd done a single called ESP with Ian Anthony Stevens, which I think she did a great vocal on, by the way. Lots of nuance and subtlety. I thought that was quite good. And now this single didn't work either. It must have been quite a difficult time for her. I think she was struggling to find a new direction, you know, in the wake of the sort of the cowbell era of whatever I do. Yeah, it must have felt at this point like getting to number 41 with Back in My Arms and No Fool for Love was actually quite a good thing. When songs like Stand Up and They Say It's Gonna Rain coming nowhere near the top 40 it was yeah it was really a difficult time now you mentioned ESP that was a non-stock Aiken Waterman single released between they say it's gonna rain and stand up it's not sore but let's hear a bit of it shall we I couldn't fight the special power you had 
Okay, that was ESP, Extra Sensual Persuasion, as uh, it stands for in this case. A really good song, as Matt said. And we talked to Hazel about ESP and stand-up, and here's what she had to say. Well, ESP was, I did a couple of tracks with Ian Stevens. We'd gotten together again and, and written a few songs together, and uh, but we did ESP. But I don't know what happened because when we started out in the studio, it sounded really good. But sometimes, you know, you can go too far with things. You can overproduce things. And what's, what started out sounding great, and Ian has still got the original uh, sort of mix that we had, and I've heard it since And uh, because we are thinking of doing a little little something with those tracks and that's how it should have sounded but it kind of I don't know what happened it just didn't work out ESP and it's a shame because it was such a good track at the time but that was just one of those things it just didn't happen and then we had stand up I hadn't done anything with Stock Aitken Waterman it was I don't know we were just going through a I'd done they say it's going to rain and I think we needed a breather to be honest and I think they felt the same so we did and then Pete Waterman just called me up out of the blue he said, look, I've got this song called Stand Up. He loves that song. Um, he said, will you come down and put a vocal on it for me? So I thought, you know, what? <laughs> I wasn't, I mean, I was working. I'm always working, doing live shows and things. And I thought, I said, yeah, because I, I tried a few various things. I'd done some tracks with Ian Levine and, and stuff like that, but it, they, it just wasn't working out. So, yeah, I went down to the studio and I put my voice on Stand Up. My only reservation, this is quite funny because this has come up recently. The only thing I didn't like about I love the song. It's a real uplifting song, and Pete Waterman loved that song. But for me, it was always too fast. And recently, there's a DJ, AJ, I think his name is. He's done lots of remixes on various tracks. He's done, I think he's done all, all my, my, my catalogue. But he heard me say this. There's a couple of DJs, in actual fact. They remixed it, and they slowed it down. It sounds great. <laughs> I always felt it was too fast for the dance floor. From that track, we kind of move forward and then we did always, which I love. And then we move along the line. And then the next thing that comes along after that, of course, is who's leaving who. Yeah. I mean, for stand up, as much as maybe I've felt the way I felt about it, it did kind of open the doors again for us to get back together and, and, um, and record some more tracks. Yeah, I really have to agree with Hazel. The speed is an issue on this song. When I first heard it, I thought, well, you know, is there something wrong with this? Has someone tinkered with it or something? Because the speed was just completely off the dial and I don't think it really works, the speed. You know, it's a shame because this song does have a great melody. It's well structured. I think Saw did a great job with the English language lyrics, you know, from the adaptation from the original, which we'll get to in a minute. But it just, it was a non-starter, I think. This kind of speed didn't seem to be replicated anywhere else in the charts. It didn't seem to be a part of a trend. So... This was an experiment that went nowhere. Yeah, it's funny because it was not long after Keskase by Splash. And if you remember, Steve Grant also talked about how fast that song was. So I don't know what Saul were thinking, or in this case, Pete Waterman, because he seems to have been the person behind how fast these tracks were. They weren't connecting with people. They were too fast, too fast for clubs. That said, I really like Stand Up. The speed doesn't really bother me that much. I must say the best bit is actually an instrumental break that I'm going to have to play for you. Let's hear that now.
dancing like she's never danced before. How much does that sound like Maniac? It's amazing. There's also a key change in stand-up. It really kind of, maybe they threw too much in. Maybe they threw in everything and the kitchen sink and then put it into hyperspeed. Yeah, another interesting thing about this record is that it's based on a 1984 Italian hit called Hurrah by Umberto Tozzi and Giancarlo Bagassi, the duo responsible for a string of Euro hits, including Gloria and Ti Amo, which were both famously covered with great success by Laura Branigan. So I guess uh, Mr. Waterman must have seen those hit firing up across the world and decided he wanted to go at it as well and adapted one of their hits. Right. If Laura Branigan can do it, so can we. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, but it was a good idea. Should we hear a bit of Hurrah, which I have to say is one of the best titles ever? Let's hear it. fantastic upbeat song turned into stand-up by Hazel Dean but sadly Hazel's return to Saw didn't give her another hit but another act from Saw's high energy heyday did make the UK top 40 here we go Matt it's dead or alive yes after the mega success of the Youthquake album in 1985 Saw's first ever number one act dead or alive returned in September of 86 with the opening single from their follow-up LP mad bad and dangerous to know Yes, now that piece of brilliance was Brand New Lover by Dead or Alive. One of my favourite Saw records of all time. Actually, it's in my top five. It was a hit all around the world, especially in Japan and America. But back home in the UK, it was a very different story. And we'll get into why that happened shortly. But first, Gavin, what did you think of Brand New Lover? I really like Brand New Lover. It's not my favourite song from Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know. Well, still to get to that, obviously. But it was a really good comeback record. I don't know what the UK was thinking. Matt, perhaps you can shed some light on that. Yeah, well, let's talk about the chart performances. Brand New Lover got to a very disappointing number 31 in the UK. Ouch. Yeah, but in the US it reached number 15 on the Billboard chart, making it Saw's third Billboard Top 20 hit and one of their big landmark hits over there in America. In the US it also hit number one on both the dance chart and the 12-inch sales chart. In Australia it reached a healthy 21 on the charts despite no radio support whatsoever. In New Zealand it got to 15, in South Africa 19, in Canada 27, in Finland 6, in Ireland 22, and in Japan 2. Now that UK position is such an injustice and it's so out of step with how it did in comparable markets all around the world. Let's talk about how and why that happened. First, we had the lawsuit with the record company over a lack of royalties for Dead or Alive's 12-inch sales, which Pete Burns really felt poisoned their working relationship. Certainly went on the record a number of times as saying CBS didn't press enough copies of Brand New Lover in the UK. And also on top of that, apparently there was a screw up at the factory which resulted in a lot of the labels for the single being lost. At the time, Smash Hits UK reported, and I quote, the company underestimated the demand for Brand New Lover, which resulted in it being unavailable at a crucial time and thus only half a hit. Pete Burns told another interviewer, quote, of course they, the record company, denied all knowledge, but we got to the bottom of it and I have my sources, you know. He claimed that reliable estimates put the lost UK sales at around 67,000 copies. Ooh. Yeah, I know. In another interview, in a book called 
called Europe's Stars of 80s Dance Pop by author James Arena, Pete went even further on this matter and seemed to suggest something really sinister was going on. Quote, they didn't press the quantity that was required for Brand New Lover. That was how they were able to tell you that you'd had a flop. They'd done it to countless bands. It was a commonplace thing, but it did extremely well in the US. The album won me songwriting awards in America and Britain. Dead or Alive and CBS had a famously fractious relationship, didn't they, Gavin? But as an outsider to the music business, it's really hard to get your head around this idea that a record company wouldn't want their act to sell as many records as possible. It's crazy. It's great. I mean, surely they're in it for the money. When they had an act that was popular, they had a song that was good, wouldn't they just go, you know what, let's just milk it. Let's just get all the money we can from it. Print all the copies, sell all the copies, make more money, and they would have had the last laugh. So it just seems a bit odd to me. Yeah, it's weird. The troubles uh, between Dead or Alive and the record company predated the lawsuit over 12-inch sales. CBS Epic were never really on board with Pete's love of high energy, as you'd recall from our episode about You Spin Me Round. He told one magazine interviewer, quote, After we did You Spin Me Round and it was successful, the record company said that we should change direction. Then Bananarama did Venus, which was a total You Spin Me Round copy. I mean, they even went to the same producers. After it was successful, suddenly the company thought our sound was important again because they had seen someone else have success with it. It's very stifling that I have to wait for fucking Bananarama to release a record before I can even get a release schedule. It was an insult. Toxic. Gavin Toxic. I wish, and this might sound like purely selfish reasons, but I wish Pete Burns was still alive because how good would he be on this podcast? My goodness. I know, I know. It's such a loss that he's gone. I really miss him. You know, he if you haven't already guessed, he was my biggest, biggest idol when I was at high school. He got me through some really difficult times. And thank you, Pete, for that. And thank God we've still got the music, even if we don't have Pete, unfortunately. All these legal distribution problems causing trouble in the UK for Dead or Alive, but there was much more to the story behind this record than that wasn't there Matt because things did not go well in the studio as well. Now, Pete Burns did have a difficult relationship with Saw at the best of times. The fights that went on during the recording of this album were legendary, and we got a sense of uh, Saw's perspective on that when they did an interview with Smash Hits magazine in 1987. Pete Waterman said, and I quote, that second album took six months. We'd never done anything like that before, and we never will again. We felt frustrated because we're always trying to make better and better records and push back new barriers. They were a nightmare because they didn't want to do anything new. We played them all the basics of house music in early January and they should have been doing it before anyone else but they wouldn't listen. Now we in the past have heard about these arguments, these problems. We've heard from Phil Harding who gave the big dramatic story about You Spin Me Round. We heard from Mike Stock who said ah it wasn't so bad. Let's hear again from Phil who mixed this entire record. He wasn't in the studio with the band recording but he was downstairs and did the mix on this single and the entire album and here's what phil had to say it was pretty torturous most of that second album was recorded upstairs with other engineers you know we had hired other engineers by this time you know karen hewitt yo-yo a number of young engineers that we had but it was always obviously designated that i would do the mixes i remember the my first day or so <laughs> was of the first couple of mixes we did almost like the feeling that pete burns uh, and steve were trying to put across on spin me round pulling the faders up and, and hearing what had been recorded it didn't sound to me like the recording was finished <laughs> and i knew from other people in the building you know and talking to mike and matt you know how's a how's a dead or alive album recording going it was fraught again not as fraught as i described on the on, on the mixed day of spin me round but you know they they were especially 
Pete Burns and Steve no disrespect because obviously they're pushing for what they want creatively and pushing to achieve a great result on their songs but I'm told at times they became over pushy and, and want to keep going and again it was a bit when Mike and Matt said well you know that's as much as we can do on all of the tracks get downstairs with Phil and get mixing I remember still you know the drums weren't finished so but Steve he was a great drummer and you know good at programming so we was as each track came up to mix there was still more drums to program and even at times um i ended up uh, calling matt aiken down and saying you know i think we need a few more keyboard parts here and there matt to just just to, to round things off so um but there i was mixing a whole album with with four members of the band often only pete and steve in the room with me so it was difficult let me let me put it that way i mean i, I think the results it's hard for me to judge the results because when you sent so long working on something and and if it's been difficult the last thing you want to do is spend time listening to it in your in your leisure time i mean one of these days i should go back and you know see how it sounds now but i remember having to find these calming tablets from the chemist trying to keep me calm because i was continually getting this barrage of instructions and shouting phil harding wasn't the only one who needed to do calm down once he got home pete burns when he got home he needed a bit of tender care didn't he yeah that's right he told author james arena quote i got really sick of working with them during the making of the mad bad album i got really really sick we worked on that album from 10 in the morning till 8 every night and every evening when i arrive home my wife had to have bath towels heated red hot in the tumble dryer ready for me i'd be trembling and my body temperature would be so low with the stress i thought it was really too much that's pretty full on i mean you know, music's supposed to be fun, but uh, yeah, it just sounds like a nightmare. The thing we take away from all of this is that Saw, and in particular Pete Waterman, and probably the record label, wanted Dead or Alive to get with the times and move into house. They didn't want to. Fair play. They still made a brilliant album. You love it. I love it. Lots of people around the world love it. That was true to their sound and, and true to them as a band. And I kind of think, well, you know, sometimes you just have to let a band do what they want to do. Yeah, and despite not going down the house music direction, the dance floor was still, you know, the the driving inspiration on this album. And along with all the singles, Brand New Lover had some great 12-inch mixes aimed straight at the dance floor. My favourite is Phil Harding's Up Ducky mix. It's filled with all these great little Western-influenced musical moments. Should we have a listen? Sure. Brand New Lover, it's still a firm fan favourite, so I think Dead or Alive must have been happy with that, even if they weren't thrilled about what was going on in the UK. They were getting plenty of love around the world, including in Adelaide, Australia, where a young Matt Demby really loved the lyrics of Brand New Lover, didn't you, Matt? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Because, you know, despite all the drama and disappointment that surrounded this record in in some places, it's still a fantastic song and that just shines through. It's not only great musically, but it's great lyrically. Now, let's take a moment to glory in some of those lyrics, some of that great Pete Burns brilliance. Brand New Lover, I think, has one of the best opening verses of any pop song that I can think of. It's just so Pete Burns. Let's have a listen now. Bloody brilliant. What do you think of that, Gavin? So much personality, so much burns. 
Burns by name, burns by nature. <laughs> now, we heard Phil Harding mention that PWL had hired new engineers, so now's a great time to hear from one of them. And it's someone who worked on Brand New Lover and the Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know album. It's Karen Hewitt, and Saw fans will know her name from all those credits on all those singles and albums. She worked at PWL for about five years. Here's Karen telling us about how she ended up working with Stock Aiken Waterman. I was working at a studio called The Workhouse, which was owned by an artist by the name of Manfred Mann. A phone call came through from PWL that said their engineer was sick and could they send a replacement engineer over. And I was working as an assistant, so, you know, I was dispensable, as it were. I I remember the words exactly. She said, these guys are up and coming. They're doing some good stuff and they're just going to explode. Get in the cab and don't fuck it up. And was it going to be for... A day or a week? What, what was the plan? Their engineer, whose name was Rob Waldron, uh, had the flu. I was told that um, they were in the middle of a, you know, a project. They had to keep going, had to push through. Rob had the flu. Could, could I come and fill in? I was so excited. As soon as I got there and I saw what their studio looked like, and it was heaven for an engineer, you know, like they had every piece of gear you could imagine. So I wanted to stay and I was just hoping, you know, I don't wish this Rob Baldwin fell any harm, but, you know, I hope he has a really long flu and a very slow recovery. <laughs> in a nutshell, what part does an engineer play in the recording process? The engineer is responsible for getting the sound from the musicians in the studio onto whatever the recording format is, whether it back in the day of Stock Aiken Waterman, it was tape machines. A day would start off with Pete Waterman saying, this is what we're going to do today. I've got a title. He would tell you what tempo he wanted it, uh, what style he wanted it. And then he would leave Mike and Matt B and they would just start doodling around on keyboards or guitar, mainly keyboards and drum machines. And then the song would be created in front of you. So it was a really, really special thing to be just locked in a studio making a song from scratch. And then the best part for me was because they had so much great equipment. Like I'm the sort of engineer that used the desk like my instrument. So, you know, I just pressed every button I could and, and just got very excited by the whole thing. So I guess in in a lay person's terms, your job is to adjust levels and and twiddle the knobs and basically get the sound sounding as great as possible. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, to give the musician whatever help they need. Yeah. I mean, you're there to make just everything work. So what do you think about that, Matt? You get called in for one day's work, five years later, you're still there. Yeah. It's one of those sliding doors moments, you know, a, a life-changing thing where her name ended up being on the back of millions of records sold all around the world. Now, Matt, I know you, you just want to hear Karen talking about Dead or Alive, don't you? I do. And I want surprises. Here she is talking about working on Brand New Lover and Mad, Bad and Dangerous to my memories are really, really fond memories. Pete Burns, like he was bigger than life. He was a joy to actually just watch, you know, like everything he did was a performance, if, whether he was asking you to make a cup of tea for him or, or going in to sing the vocal. He was always on stage. He was always Pete Burns. But he and Steve at that point were in a relationship, so they were the main force of the band. And then Mike and Tim yeah. They took a secondary role. So it was mainly all the conversations that Mike and Matt had with them were always with Pete and Steve. And, oh, my God, there were lots of arguments. Yeah, lots of arguments. And what were the arguments about? There was always, 
you know, because Doc Aiken and Waterman only really worked with Bananarama. Oh, they did. No, they worked with Brilliant. So they did work with a few bands, but it wasn't really what they liked to do. So they didn't like, you know, their ideas to compete with the artists. So that's where the argy-bargy was, you know. It was what they wanted versus what the band wanted. Do you recall what vision Stock Aiken and Waterman had versus where Dead or Alive wanted to take things? Well, it was pretty much that they didn't really want anyone but Pete on the album. It was Pete and Mike and Matt. You know, they didn't really want the guys to play very much. So that was always a bit of a, you know, sticking point. Some of the arguments were loud. Some of them were quite vicious. So, you know, when a big blue occurred, you couldn't not know. And it was almost part of the show. I look at those, the big arguments, some of them, you know, not the ones where, say, for example, Pete Burns really wanted to change his song, but some of them were for Mike and Matt's own entertainment. It was just part of how they got their creative energy going. Mike Stock particularly loved a good argument, loved to, you know, like get the adrenaline pumping that way. And, you know, that's why after Dead or Alive, I think they were burnt a little bit and they just went, we don't want to have to work that hard. We don't want to have to go through that much. Now, when I was talking to Karen, Matt, I did ask her about Pete Burns going home and needing hot towels and being so worked up about it. And I think you'll be interested in what she had to say about that. Have a listen to this. It's quite sad to hear that. No, I wouldn't have thought that. To me, it looked like Pete Burns was quite happy to argue, you know, like he's a feisty fellow. Maybe that's part of the performance. Very true, yeah. Okay, but so from your perspective, though. I never saw him that upset and and I'm sad that he was. I Like I can understand the pressure. Follow-up albums from an album that's done well is harder. So he would have been under a huge amount of stress, yeah. But it seemed like he, he, he liked the fight. He looked like he was in his element while he was recording that album. He looked as strong as a bull. <laughs> to see that, you know, her vision of how Pete was behaving was not really fitting with how he was feeling inside. And you know, it gives you some sense that perhaps he always felt that he had to be performing to be an aggressive, assertive figure. But inside, he was not as hard as he appeared to be. Last episode, we heard Mike Stock give a fairly blunt assessment of what he thought of songwriting with Bananarama. It was pretty blunt, wasn't it? Yeah, but honest. We like honest, don't we? We do like honest. And Karen was actually in the room for most, if not all, of those songwriting sessions between Bananarama and Mike Stock and Matt Aitken. And here's what she observed. Bananarama, another act who had a difficult relationship with Saw. Is that fair to say? If you had to like drill it down to one word, I would say it was a pretty prickly relationship at times. Yeah, prickly. What made it prickly, do you think? It's funny because when, when they made Venus, everything came together, you know. Recording was great. The girls were great. And the girls are great. You know, like the way they sing, it's quite remarkable to, to see them sing. So when they were just, everyone had the role of Stock Aiken and Waterman being the producers and Bananarama being the artist, that worked really well. As soon as you throw Bananarama as the writers of the songs into the mix, it becomes a whole different ball game. And again, it wasn't one that, Mike and Matt were comfortable sharing. They're sort of like, and I don't mean it cruelly, like Mike Stock's the guy in the sandpit that doesn't want to share his toys. But the way I always looked at it was why was there so much conflict? It's really easy to forget when you're working for them that they're running a business. Running a business means you need to make as much money as you can. You need to make a profit. And as soon as you start sharing a song royalty, it automatically means you don't get as much as you did if they weren't writing it with you. 
I kind of think that's where a lot of the fighting was. They just didn't want to share writing credit with people. You know, it wasn't organic either. They, the, the writing sessions weren't like an organic thing where, you know, songwriters would sit around and write the songs together. And these were like, okay, you guys come in, you know, the girls come in at three o'clock on Tuesday and we'll, we'll write another song. And it was like, okay, your time starts now sort of thing. And, and even that just wasn't a, like a conducive environment for two, because they were two opposing teams. Bananas on one side, Mike and Matt on the other. There was always like a time put on it. There was always time limits at PWL. Everything had to be done fast. You know, that's a tough way to be told to write a song, you know, like I don't think the girls felt that comfortable. And I don't think they felt, I don't think they felt the love if you know what I mean. You've got to be in a really safe environment to write a song. There's got to be harmony, but um, I don't think a relationship was built up. It was like, okay, this is your day in the studio. We're writing a song. You know, I remember, you know, Sarah used to bring a dog in and the, the control room wasn't very big either, you know. So there's the three girls, there's the dog, there's Mike and Matt, there's me, a tape op. It's crowded, you know. It wasn't a comfortable setting to write a song in. And so you were in the room when they were writing as well as recording? Yeah, most of the time. The song was on a, a piece of tape, so the tape had to be kept being rewound and back and then, you you know, the guys would play and all the girls would sing a line. You know, this is when they were writing, you know, to get the melodies and stuff. So it was always just that one piece of, you know, five-minute song just going round and round and round. So you, you always had a job as the engineer. It wasn't, okay, the band's in the studio and they're just going to jam along all day and get something. It, it wasn't that. It was a studio that was solely drum machines, synthesizers, and, you know, Matt played all these guitar parts through like a little device. We didn't even have a guitar amp. It wasn't where you come and all, everyone gets, you know, cosy and they spend a week writing a song. Like they never had that luxury. They, the girls did a lot more than just come in and sing on their songs. You know, they did. They spent all day there, whereas all the other artists just came in and were told what to sing. The girls were very opinionated and that was really foreign for Mike and Matt. Yeah, I mean, the girls gave as good as they got and there were definitely times when they said no we don't like the style or or the way it's going i mean to my mind that's kind of what an artist should be doing totally yeah and you know like forget spice girls those three girls were the original girl power they knew what they wanted they knew their sound They'd been around before. It wasn't their first rodeo. So, you know, they weren't really going to be pushed around by Mike and Matt. And Mike and Matt, you know, found that quite challenging. And that was Karen's experience of what it was like being in the room with Bananarama and Stock and Aiken as they song wrote together. Interesting. Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the great things that I enjoy about this podcast is that we're hearing multiple perspectives and we're hearing the voices of people we've never heard speak before about these great legendary records. I mean, I kind of can see all sides to this story. I can see that Mike Stock and Matt Aiken were very busy. They just wanted to get in there, get out there. They knew what they were doing. They just wanted to get the job done and move on to the next thing because they probably had Pete Waterman breathing down their neck. And I can also see the Bananarama side of things, not that we've heard from Bananarama, but I can imagine what their side of things might have been. And now it's seeing someone else looking at both of these teams, Karen called them teams, that was really interesting, and seeing, yeah, okay, you know what, maybe this isn't the best arrangement to get a really good working relationship out of. So uh, yeah, as I say, interesting. Well, you know, friction does sometimes produce beautiful 
wonderful art and some of the Saw Bananarama singles are some of the finest work they ever did. They were very well represented in my top 20 favourite Saw singles. That's certainly uh, the case. Indeed, I would agree with that as well. Now, thanks to Karen Hewitt for providing her perspective on a couple of Stockacre Waterman's biggest acts. And we'll be hearing more from her as we continue our journey through Saw. What? Only three singles talked about this episode? That's right. And it can only mean one thing. Next episode is a standalone episode for one single. Hi, this is Kim Appleby, and I'm talking to Chart Beats about my journey from Stock Aiken and Walton. I cannot tell you how excited I am to be able to co-present the great Kim Appleby when she talks about showing out one of the defining pop records of my teenage years. It is exciting stuff. In two weeks' time, Kim Appleby on Showing Out. Until then, subscribers via Chartbeats can check out our bonus material at chartbeats.com.au slash saw. For this episode, we'll put up the full interview with Austin Howard, and we're going to give you a sneak peek of our Kim Appleby interview in which she talks about I'm the one who really loves you. Before our next episode, do make sure that you check in with us on social media. You can reach Chartbeats AU on Twitter and Instagram. Search for Chartbeats on Facebook and you can reach me personally on Twitter. I'm Mr. Matt Denby. I would love to hear from you. I love hearing from the listeners of this podcast at any time. Likewise. Can't wait for the next episode. See you in a couple of weeks. Get fresh. Get fresh.